A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Slaughter Podcast will be discussing topics that some listeners may find disturbing. I like the some listeners. Like it's very some upbeat. Listeners. Um you probably will find it disturbing, but certainly not as disturbing as our some of our Patreon content. <laughs> That's true. Um just because it's weird. I'm Emma and this is Lucy. <laughs> no, it's not, it's I'm Lucy. Oh, yeah, shit. I'm Emma. Uh, this is Lucy. <laughs> we had a little freak out because Emma looked at my page and saw the title and it said Babes in the Wood. Yeah, I actually was like, fuck, we knew because um, we're quite organised in almost every way other than we don't tell each other who we're going to do. I think people may believe that's not true and like we act surprised, but genuinely there's no communication about who we're researching for the episodes so the fact that we've never doubled up has been purely chance at this point yeah but we haven't made that mistake because it turns out there's two fucking babes in the woods and we've done the other ones so this is a babes in the woods special by mistake there will be a lot which obviously is um, so there's going to be a lot of dead kids in woods yeah i was trying to think how to say it that wasn't quite so blunt so it, i know for some people like dead children is a some is a thing that they don't particularly want to listen to so this is like a, a trigger warning on the trigger warning well, that's very good of us like, i we know don't right bother with that. we don't normally like cannibals yeah no one cares about that or yeah i mean look they're both i imagine yours is fucked up mine's pretty fucked up um but well researched yeah i read a full book for this I don't know what I want. A medal? I think a that's... A pat on the back? That's the library system's fault because did you as a child in the summer holidays have to do those like reading challenges? No. Oh. My and parents we were... loved me. <laughs> <laughs> but like we were in the summer holidays, you had like a poster and there'd be like 20 books that you had to read. And then if you read them all in the holidays, you'd get a certificate. <laughs> and I think like some sort of medal or badge. I like that. That's cute. They still do it now, but just no one goes to the library. True. Save your local library. In fact, don't. No one needs it. No, save the local library. Yeah, but people used to go for the computers, but now they've got their own, haven't they? People still go for computers. Do you know what I love? When you go, when you like go to a new city and you find an internet cafe. <laughs> yeah, but you don't. There's Wi-Fi everywhere now. You don't need it. I know. That's why they're so special, because none of them are real. They're all a front for something. Yeah. Who has a functioning internet cafe yeah, nobody. nobody people have in like internet cafe maybe i'm just naive to it but someone out there knows maybe all the internet cafes are actually the same thing every time you see an internet cafe it's a child porn ring and just no one's told me because i'm not into it or every internet cafe is a front for something different but they're definitely not for the internet maybe it's a 
money laundering because I found out that a way of cleaning your money if you have stolen money is you open like a tattoo parlor or something where people pay cash and then you say we did this number of tattoos that you never did and they paid this much and then you put it in the bank and then it comes and then you withdraw it and then it's clean yeah uh I found that out because I watched a Danish tv show that was really really good I can't remember the name of it you should watch power on Netflix it's a show about drug dealers and you learn a lot about cleaning money on that. Oh, really? You also get really confused because people will just, within the space of a day, want to kill someone and then be like, I'm with you forever. And then the next day be like, I'm going to fucking kill him. And then that's it. Well, this Danish TV show, I don't, I don't know if it's Danish or Finnish or something else, but it's got subtitles. <laughs> but it was uh, basically this guy. Uh, are we rambling too much? Should I stop? Well, if we're going to ramble, just tell me about the Danish show first. Okay. Otherwise, I'll be like, what is it? You could skip forward. So, and then he, his wife gets really sick and then he tries to save her and he can't. So he fakes her death and then opens up, uh, he's a doctor and he opens up a medical lab down in the underground and the guy who, the manager of these uh, unused units um, brings down criminals who don't want to use the hospitals would have to give their names and he starts treating them on the side so it's like house but really fucked up clients and stuff it's really good is it based on a true story is the front of the underground doctors internet cafe no but i can't remember the name of it so (laughs) this is useful to no one it's something like oh i don't know i'll look it up i'll tell you dr dungeon it begins with V and it's okay. got a weird name. So <laughs> this is Babes of the Wood. Uh, the book that I read for this uh, She's is... not going to stop, <laughs> stop going on that she read a book. I read a whole book. All it does is just to show how little she reads normally. A question of Evidence, Who Killed the Babes in the Wood by Christopher Berry D and Robin O'Dell, which I saw. I think We've done a book by him before. Don't they sound like a cute little double act? Berry D and O'Dell. Yeah, they're ador- I've definitely done a murder that they wrote before. They're like churning them out. Well yeah. done. It was good. Uh, so, um, Karen Hardaway and Nicola Fellows, two schoolgirls, went missing from their homes in October 1986. I feel like everything happens in 1986. If it's in the 80s, it's 86. I feel, like- I feel like a lot of things happened in 1888, if really? we're talking about our favourite year. Oh, what happened in 1888, Emma? The Moulin Rouge opened. Oh, okay. And various other things. The World Exhibition. Oh. Of 1888. Um, Yeah, there's more. So I'm going to start from the 9th of October. And this is Nicola and Karen and sort of what they did that day. So they go to school as usual. They attend different schools, even though they live pretty near because... In the UK, you have about three primary schools in walking distance from any house. Mm. Um, and then Nicholas School finished at 2.45, uh, which I think is pretty early. What the hell? But she stayed for choir practice till 3.45. Then she walked home. Karen's school finished at 3.15. Um, and she walked to the bus stop with four friends who were teasing her. She apparently punched one. 
um, and then went off with two of them and got the bus. And That's she- a very dramatic afternoon. Yeah. It was almost as bad as the choir practice I had on Monday night in which a child took his shoes off and socks off and said, this is what I do after school. <laughs> and he refused to put them back on. You're not at home. And I was like, okay, you can sit in the book corner for a while. I don't know what to do. She got home at, four, at five past four. So Karen's mother um, ha- has said to police that she checked the time that Karen arrived home pretty diligently. So she knew it's five past four because... <laughs> she punches kids pretty diligently. <laughs> she's always home at this time. She punches one child and then she's back. <laughs> I know her routines. Like clockwork. Uh, so because there had been... A, you'll know about this. Uh, reports sent around by police um, of weird people in cars going up to kids. Yes. We always get the local alert that the police send around. If someone from one of the other local schools has reported something, then all the local schools get it which is really useful to make sure that people can't reoffend in the same area but you realize how many cases are reported well it's not even a case how many incidents are reported where it was i saw a man in a car he was following me i turned down a street he stopped following me but so you were a bit <laughs> there were a lot so a man was driving a car then that's initially what you think but i think i guess the point is that kids are creeped out yeah, it is a lot of, okay, were they following you if you lost them? Probably not. But it does just show that a lot of young girls are creeped out by men in cars for whatever reason. That's, yeah. the, that's the feeling that is generally around the area where I teach. At least they're speaking up about it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So this, um, this was quite a serious one because it was a ginger man who'd been in a blue car and he'd been approaching children and asking them to get in his car. They'd actually written to all the local parents of kids that are in local primary schools and they'd warned them and, and they'd been into schools as well and warned the children. Oh, because they were saying, come in. Because um, he was saying, get in my car. I must have said this on the podcast before about when in my first year of uni, literally in Freshers' Week, when a girl was like, oh, a guy pulled up in his car and asked me for my number. So I've texted him to come and meet me outside the halls. Oh. I was like, people shout things from you in cars all the time. You don't agree. What? But she, she'd never like, ever had that happen before. So she was just loving it. Do you remember that time when we were in i'm sure it was burger king which i remember it's been odd because i don't think i've ever eaten there after a night out and some guy got really aggressively and was like you're lesbians you're fucking lesbians no because we were like no thanks don't talk to us i remember that happening in a nightclub it happens a lot but i remember one in a burger king because i was like i hate burger king and it's in and the bright lights too so being shouted at in (laughs) in the bright lights is a little bit worse (laughs) Uh, anyway so someone was shouting at kids to get in cars yeah well I think more quietly than that so uh, at this time also Karen's dad Lee Hadaway um, he was away and he was helping a friend Stephen Judd who had gotten a one-off job moving some furniture um, in a transit van so basically he'd been contacted by a company and said uh, we need some furniture moving can you do it uh, and then there was like quite a few drop-offs that he had to do as part of the, and it was a few days work so he'd asked Lee Karen's dad to come along with him um, and help so they'd left on the 8th and they, so they were away on the 9th um, and they'd slept in the lorry so Nicola got home um, on the 9th and she got dressed. It went into a lot of detail in the book about how she pulled off her long white socks, which I thought was a bit weird. And then she answered the door. And then Karen's mum, who was pregnant with her fourth kid, uh, was visiting Nicola's mum at the time, which you think, oh, that's suspicious that both mums were together. But I think it was very much 
a kind of the kind of town this is in brighton um but they were in sort of the area that people were just around each other's houses all the time everyone knew everyone it was i think it was a bit of an estate so um, the dads were away together no the, the her dad was away with his friend who oh, right. had a job and the mums were spending some time together but the two mums were like, that's fine. The they're, like they're like yummy mummies yeah. they're just hanging out getting a cafe latte um so they were also in the house with nicola when she answered the door at the door were tracy and cox marion stevenson now marion's name's gonna come up a few times and russell bishop and his name will come up a lot as well uh so i know i'm overloading you with names but i'll try and keep clarifying who everyone is as we go through so they were looking for a guy called dougie who was actually the brother of the guy who'd gone on the transit van mission with karen's dad and um they'd said you know is he here we need to see him and nicola had said no he's not here um and she'd slammed the door and then shouted go away you slag which was aimed at Marion Stevenson, who was shagging Russell Bishop, even though he was living with his pregnant girlfriend. So, <laughs> I'm. Are you lost? I need a visual. Uh, so, Nicola so, answers the door to these three people. Um, they say, Where's Dougie? She's like, Oh, didn't you sleep with Russell, who is. No, Russell's Stalilla. Oh, Russell's there too. With two girls. One of them, he's shagging, but he's got a pregnant girlfriend at home oh so she's like oh why you're are you a slag like why are you here with him type thing okay uh, even though she's a child uh so then he they went off and sort of laughed at her and really give a shit um and he went off to steal a car and buy some drugs oh, so God. That's sounds like of- she did the right thing in, by slamming the door on them i know not, don't i call her a slag though it's his fault yeah let's blame the guy let's blame the guy who's cheating but um, i'm just still enjoying dougie because when i was little where we were from um Dougie was an insult. Really? Like for someone who was not very bright, you'd say, Oh, they're a bit of a Dougie. Really? Or a bit of a Kenneth. I think that was quite popular in the Barnsley area as in the yeah. early nineties. I think we'd just shout Derek at each Derek. Oh, like, oh you're proper I can't even do my accent anymore. Dougie. No. You're right, Dougie. <laughs> um so uh so yes russell bishop goes off to be a nefarious person and he's arranged to meet marion the one that he's shagging uh later on that night so karen's mum goes home um and when she gets home karen's there and she's excited about a school disco she tells her about it and then she says i'm off now and she goes out to play and it's very much sort of the area where the kids all play out yeah so karen goes out and plays with her sister uh, about 4.40, she tells some decorator who's heading home, I've been sitting on your car. I can't do a Brighton accent. What's a Brighton accent? I don't know, just down south, in it. I've been sitting on your car. It's on the coast. It's practically French. <laughs> and so then he tells her not to do that as she'll dent it. And she replies, I'm not that fat. <laughs> so quite quick-witted. Uh, a little bit of a troublemaker. Um, so there's some other kids come to join them and then they play in the front garden nearby and this is when Nicola comes along and Nicola and, and Karen sort of go off and, and they're off together from this point on. So they run off giggling, they're doing cartwheels down the street, they start, uh, they climb some tree and start swinging on it and a local policeman tells them to get down as it looks dangerous. Bitch, you need to be getting ready for the disco. <laughs> yeah. Like, I know you went into contouring then but I know you had a pan stick that you needed to get out. <laughs> come on. 
So at 5.45, the girls are seen sitting on a wall, and then 6.20... You'll get hemorrhoids. <laughs> I think people used to say that, didn't they? Yeah, sit on a cold wall. You get piles. Get... Yeah. yeah. That's not true. Is it not? Like, oh. I still say it to the kids. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ooh. Are you still going to say it now you know it's not true? Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. So, uh, 6.20, they're seen outside a fish and chip shop eating fish and chips. Uh, and the Lickler is overheard saying they're going to go to a place called Wild Park. And it's just by a schoolgirl delivering newspapers. But again, it's the kind of community where everyone just gets involved. So this schoolgirl, even though she's, like, she's a couple of years older, she said, don't go, it's too late. Your mum won't be happy. Like, she loses her. Oh, okay. Uh, 6.40, witness Kevin James uh, Carhart... There's three parts to his name, apparently. Uh, sees the girls running across a busy road. And he has to break to avoid hitting them. And he says that there were two men heading towards those girls. Mm. Now, two girls had said during the evening that they'd seen two men sitting in a car eating fish and chips. And one said she'd seen the ginger one. Now, this is weird. Dragging Karen into a vehicle in Wild Park. Well, but... From this point on, no one seems to ever mention that again or talk about this ginger man. So so two girls said they saw ginger men with the other girls missing Karen. Yeah, dragging Karen to... But so one girl she's the she only saw, person that saw... Yeah, that. so I don't know if they're... Because they were scared of the, this ginger guy anyway, if they're just assuming that she sort of sort of jumped ahead and... Um, Thought, oh, there's a scary ginger man around. Maybe. It uh, depends how old up. the girl was. Maybe she wanted to be really helpful or... Yeah, I don't know. So by 11 o'clock, the girls have been reported missing. Hundreds of police officers have been drafted in looking for Karen and Nicola. And the schools were searched. Um, staff members contacted. They literally phoned. They knocked on the head teacher's door. They phoned all the local teachers to say, do you know anything? Did they say anything? Which I think is good practice. Although, imagine a secondary school. There's like literally a hundred stuff. I don't live anywhere near my school. If they came knocking on my door to say, where's so-and-so? I'd be like, um... Well, I guess they might. They could have said something in class like, oh, I've got a plan to go here tonight or something. I could give you a quick call, could they? Oh, yeah. Um, and then the school... Uh, so Labour's began to share the fact the girls were missing and they started joining the search. And it's, it, you know, it's a real community spirit. Everyone gets involved. Everyone wants to find them. Now, Dougie who was the guy that Bishop and his... Uh, Harim. Girl, yeah, were looking for earlier. He visits a friend with a CB radio. Do you, do you know what those are? No. So they're like... Um, the only reason I know is because of the... Is Rick- it what one would call a boombox? No. Oh. Uh, it's because I used to listen to the Ricky Gervais show a lot. And uh, Carl Pilkington talks about how he had one in Manchester. Is it like a ham radio? Yeah. So it's like a little radio that can probably radio about a mile radius or something. And people had these and they would just literally be like, breaker, breaker, one, two, three. And then it'd have yeah. like handles. And... Where people will just sit at home and try and find someone to contact. Yeah, it was like MSN, but with your Radio voice. waves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. Um, so they uh, put a call out saying... There's two girls missing. Can everyone look for them? And almost immediately, someone picked up their radio. uh, And he said, this is Whispering Willie. I've killed the girls. And then hung up. 
Oh, Whispering has... Willie is the creepiest thing. It's a lot horrid. Like, he's like, I want a code name that lets everyone know I'm a bit of a pedo. Yeah. But also, I don't think that would have been the killer because... Uh, it could have been literally anyone. Like, yeah, why would you be radio- sitting by your radio? It's radio trolling, isn't it? Yeah, it's just a dick, isn't it? So a group of men set out searching together, um, heading out to an area of dead-end track at the railway lines. And someone, someone runs through the bushes right near them. And then minutes later, they find a pale blue sweatshirt. It's bone dry, even though the ground is wet. So it must have come, like, it must have just been dropped within like half an hour. Um, and it says Pinto on it, which I think is that the name of a car company. I don't know. Doesn't matter. It just it's it sounds shit anyway. Um Are you I, thinking of a punto? Oh shit, maybe. But it it says pinto, it's blue. Pinto. Doesn't matter what it means anyway. But it was size forty inch chest and it smelled of BO. And they radioed to the police and they said, because they're, they they're on the same wave as the police, and they said, we found this jumper. Is it connected to the girls? Is, you know, is it important? And they basically said, neither of the girls were size 40 inch chest, so no. And then they just left it on a railing over there. Now, it does actually turn out that it probably is quite connected to the girls. So in the morning... More people join the search. They're still not being found. Over 180 professionals. Uh, so that's like uh, detectives, police officers uh, from surrounding areas. And then the locals uh, on top of that in huge numbers, searching everywhere. Gardens, outbuildings. They had helicopters with thermal imaging flying over, trying to track where they were. They had tracker dogs as well. Um, Lee Hadaway, Karen's dad, he is phoned and he's told that Karen's missing. Uh, he got told at 5.45pm on the 9th um, and he calls every 30 minutes throughout the night for an update. But police basically say, you've got to come home. But the problem is that Stephen, the guy who had the job doing the deliveries, he was told specifically by the people who hired him, don't bring a friend with you. So he is he's only got this lorry with him. He can't just Why would you specifically be told not to bring a friend? Cuz they're not insured for it. You can't just like have your mates go along. Oh. I thought it was like they're luring him somewhere like come alone. <laughs> no, no. They're just this is not a job. Deliver this furniture to the abandoned quarry. <laughs> Do not bring a friend. He's got all this furniture in his van and then this guy with him whose daughter's gone missing who he needs to take back to Brighton. But he can't tell the company and say oh, I've got to go drop my friend off. So he's got no reason to not do these deliveries that he can explain. So what the, what he does is, the police say, um, you're going to have to just drop him off at a local police station or we'll drive him back. Now, Nicola and Karen, they were reported missing at 8.36 by a mail caller. And that was Douglas Judd. Dougie! Uh, oh, it might be Dougie. Hang on, why do they use a different name then? It might, it might be not be Dougie. Sounds like Dougie. So a family friend of Nicola, close friends with her father, who's called Barry Fellows. So Lee is uh, Karen's dad. Lee's Karen's dad. He's halfway up the M25 delivering furniture. Nicola's dad is Barry Fellows. So on the 10th of October, so this is the day after they were reported missing, in an effort to find the girls, Karen's mom gave Russell Bishop an item of Karen's clothing because his mum had a tracker dog. And Russell Bishop is... The guy who's cheating on his girlfriend. A cheating guy who just goes around looking for Dougie, 
in random houses. Yeah, and then stealing cars. So he gives this his mum sniffer dog. Apparently, the police know oh about it. There are so many fucking characters around <laughs> yeah. here. So he gives his mum's sniffer dog this uh, piece of Karen's clothing that the police know about and they're okay with to try and find Karen. Doesn't work. Oh, do you think it's like a retired sniffer dog and she's like, I'm still going to use it? Yeah, but he's a drug dealer. That sounds like a really bad uh... concoction. <laughs> like every time he comes around, the dog goes nuts. But he, he doesn't find the girls. But he stops looking and I'll tell you why in a minute. But these two young lads, aged 18 and 19, are the ones who actually find Nicola and Karen. So they set off searching at 3.30pm on the tele this is the day after they've gone missing and they decide that they're going to go right into the undergrowth one of them's got like a hospital porter job one of them's unemployed they're just two sort of helpful lads not connected to anything and they're in wild park it's helpful that they're not connected to anything because i don't think i can comprehend any more connections (laughs) at this point we don't need to know their names thankfully so at 4 20 one of them spots a pink item of clothing and just shouts the other i've found something go and get the police so prior to this, a policeman had been searching and he'd been talking to locals and he recalled talking to this Russell Bishop who was looking for the girls, not related, cheating on his girlfriend, that guy. And he said Not related other than the fact that he'd been to... Her house. Nicola's yeah. house. So he tells the police officer, I'm not going to look anymore because if I find them, I'm going to get accused of the murder. So... The police, is, the police officer is like, that's a bit weird. Um, yeah, so, why are you telling us? Yeah. So just after that conversation with this police officer, these young la- this young lad arrives running and he says, I found something, you need to come. Now this police officer is pretty old with a stick. So he says to Bishop, you run on ahead, tell everyone not to touch the bodies. He's literally assuming they're dead. They are. But... Um, there are I'll... some really frightening statistics though aren't they about how if a child goes missing they're likely like after each after every 24 hours the likelihood of them being found yeah, alive decreases enormously although i did just watch uh my students lonely that i'm into all this weird shit so they keep recommending stuff and they watch 3096 days about a girl who was kidnapped and found alive in austria it was good. It's a good film. Which Based on one? a true story. So basically, this guy says to the dodgiest fucking guy in the community, you go to the scene first, I'll catch you up. Yeah. So he starts running off um, and then the police, uh, the police follows him. So when he arrives at the scene, he sees a bright pink jumper and the body of a young girl and then uh, so the other girl's body, so Nicola and Cameron's bodies are there right near each other. So the scenes of crime unit arrives at 4.45pm. Now they had a murder bag. This isn't relevant, but I thought it was interesting. From the 1930s, it seems that they put into place these murder bags that they send with these crime units. And they have in them gloves, exhibit bags, labels, tweezers, um, just so that they can collect evidence correctly. Because in 1924, there was a case where a police officer called Chief Inspector Savage, hmm. which is cool. Was name. he just putting stuff in his pockets? I'll save that for later. <laughs> well, sort of. That's what Poirot did. He was gathering up pieces of decomposing flesh with his bare hands at the scene of a crime. 
So this is why they brought in these murder bags because that is not good practice. I love that like before then forensic units would just be showing up like, right, we need to collect everything. Oh shit, we've not brought anything. (laughs) Until someone decided, let's make it policy that you have to bring some bags with you. (laughs) (laughs) It's so common sense, isn't it? I guess they just did it. Uh, plus they didn't have DNA or anything they're just like oh, this is just unsolvable yeah we'll see what we're dealing with first yeah so then so Russell Bishop on seeing the girls becomes sick and he vomits on the grass um, and he has to get taken home now Lee Hadaway the father of Karen gets back to Brighton by now and he this is this is really heartbreaking he hears on the police radio someone radios over because he's with police at this point and they say that the girls have been found alive and well and he starts crying. Why would they radio that? I know. Like, I think someone has said they've been found and then someone just made an assumption. Oh, because the police officer hadn't hobbled over yet. Yeah. So they say, oh, the girls have been found. They're cold, but they're alive. A real big, big assumption. And he says, I'll give her a bloody good smack. But like, sort of like, oh, she's put me through this. I'm so concerned. And then minutes later, they get an update that the girls, in fact, are dead. Which is just God. the most horrific thing. And then Barry Fellows, Nicola's dad, handles uh, the lose not very well because he uh, finds out and immediately tries to punch a constable in the face. Um, and his brothers have to tackle him to the ground. So, well, you just can't... I mean, I, It's I, the yeah. most horrific news that a parent could ever receive. And you just don't know how people will react because it's just that emotion is not... And it's not a it's not a feeling everyone goes through that no. you can't I you can't fully comprehend how people are and it's really interesting when people talk about how parents react um, during these sorts of crimes and when people say oh they didn't act how I would expect yeah. them to or they acted suspicious but there is no I don't think anyway there's a correct way to act well you don't know how you'd act. I'd... I mean, you can, I, I believe professionals, if they say like there was something very suspicious about their behavior, but when the media gets involved and they say, oh, they were crying, it's cro- it must be crocodile tears, how do you know? Or they didn't cry at all, why the fuck didn't they? Or yeah, like they seemed the, yeah. angry when they should have been sad or they seemed sad when they should have been angry. Like everyone's got their own ideas of how you would react to it. But I think it's quite personal. I always think of that Amanda Knox when... Uh, she literally didn't really know this girl. She'd gone on this gap year. She'd only been there a few weeks and her housemate got killed. Oh, and they, they freaked said, out. oh, she yeah. wasn't crying enough and she was snogging her boyfriend. She didn't snog him. She like had a hug. And... But yeah. if something horrible's happened and you're with your partner, you'd just go over, you and would like hold a... on to them yeah. for a bit of support, wouldn't you? I felt like that was a normal thing. If I'd had some terrible news... I would go and... Yeah, she's just started dating this guy. She's obviously really into it. She doesn't know this girl. I mean, she's not going to be <laughs> like, like... She's really into him, so <laughs> she's not going to stop that. What do you know? Like, We're what? not going to let this murder cock block her. <laughs> but you know when you're at that age and it's sort of... You you are a bit sort of like it's your first relationship and you're a little bit obsessive and, and everything. But also, like, she didn't know this girl well. I wouldn't expect her to be sort of... Oh my god! Like, well, no, I don't think she was disregarding the no. murder. I think she was seeking comfort in her partner yeah, at the time. Yeah. I don't think it was. Oh, I'm ignoring this because I'm going to go and have a snog. I think yeah. it was. I'm sad. I need my boyfriend. Yeah, yeah. It was just weird how it. Like, yeah, 
anyway, we'll hear more about him later. Don't feel too bad for Barry Fellows. So the, the girls' bodies showed evidence of, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but rape and strangulation. Um, now, they didn't do temperature readings, which is weird because usually when uh, there's, there's no clear time of death, they would very quickly but they said that they didn't want to sort of tamper with the evidence but it does seem that they were able to sort of pin down the time of death anyway through the post-mortem because uh, they decided they were killed somewhere between 5 p.m on the 9th and 3 a.m 3 a.m on the 10th but then they narrowed that down to between 7 and 8 p.m on the 9th eventually bishop was very quickly taken in for questioning because he'd been seen in wild park shortly before the girls were killed and uh, the police went back and they collected in this up this pinto jumper as evidence. Um, I think someone brought it in actually and said, do you want this? And they went, yeah, all right. Not really thinking much about it. So then um, Karen's parents spoke out about uh, how they were certain that the killer must be someone that Karen knew because she very much wouldn't speak to strangers. Um, so, uh, they sort of tried to focus on that. And I, usually it is someone that, you know, anyway, particularly in sort of a small town area. Okay, I guess. But has Karen's mum read this book? Because apparently she was mouthing off to a decorator. That's true. Earlier. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, a local woman, Tracy Ann Cox, came forward. Now, the writer of this book is not a big fan of hers. She said that she'd seen the girls playing Conkers and then walking into a railway tunnel at 6.45pm, which was obviously a really key time for this murder because they were killed very shortly after, if it's between 7 and 8. Now, her statement didn't relate to other witnesses and she later admitted that she'd been mistaken. So uh, the writer of the book basically says, look, this this bitch is uh, really trying to make it about herself and get a bit of... Uh, a bit of publicity. So he actually wrote to her to see if she would comment and made a point of saying that she returned his letter ripped in two uh, back to his address. <laughs> Irrelevant. But I just thought it was funny that they just wanted to put that little dig in there. Um, so when questioned, Bishop admitted he'd seen the girl swinging in the tree, which linked to the witnesses earlier that we had. Uh, he'd also been seen in the area. Um, and he hadn't turned up to meet Marion, who he'd said he'd meet at 6.30. Uh, so they asked why that was. Um, he couldn't really give a reason. Um, he also said that when he'd attended the scene of the crime, he'd gone over to the girls and felt their pulses. So I don't know um, what, well, I can guess why he might say that. But because his fingerprints were on them, is yeah. That what you're to say? But witnesses said he didn't go anywhere near the bodies. But he was able to give a really clear description of what the girls had looked like when they were lying there, even though he didn't go anywhere near them. So obviously, police are like, "That's weird." Hmm. Um. So he was questioned about this. He said he was there though. He was there. He said he'd made up that he'd gone over. He wanted to seem like a hero and check their pulses, but even though he didn't. Well, so he admitted that he hadn't. Yeah. Uh, because witnesses had said, that, oh, they didn't, he didn't go anywhere near them. And there was more than one. There was these two lads that were there. He said he had an alibi of having gone to a newsagent's. Um, but when they went to speak to the newsagent, they said, oh, I do know him. And he wasn't in here. His pregnant girlfriend had been at work. Um, and the babysitter of their one-year-old had said that he hadn't been home. Hadn't been home, even though he said he'd been home. Um, his girlfriend did say that he'd come home at 11pm. He'd put his clothes straight in the wash. So this was the night that the girls were murdered. And he said that because he, he'd fallen in dog shit. 
Mm-hmm. To be fair, if you did fall in dog shit, you would want to get that shit out of your clothes really quickly. But who falls in dog shit? Um, so, Marion, Bishop's, uh, the girl he was having an affair with, she's 16 years old. Ooh. Really, really young. Now, she has had the most horrendous life. Basically, when she was eight years old, she was groomed by a guy called Ernest Pullen, who had convinced her to have sex with him and recorded it. And he'd been sent to prison for having sex with her underage. Now, he'd got out of prison before this. She'd arranged to meet up with Bishop that night, who she was besotted with. When Bishop didn't turn up, she phoned this Ernest Pullen, her abuser, and he'd come over, had sex with her and filmed it again. I, I just, oh, this poor girl. I think from a psychological point of view, do you know anything about how the relationships between victims and their abusers? Well, I guess, I mean, I guess you sort of, it, grooming is just a really horrific thing because people can convince you that they need you or you get something emotional from them and then it's very hard particularly Especially with vulnerable age, people if it happened when she was eight too like her feelings surrounding that could be really but if she hasn't got a good relationship with her parents if she's being neglected you look for it elsewhere don't you so it, it just she's just had a horrific if time. she's if she was able to ring him when he came out of prison that suggests that she must have stayed in contact with him while he was in prison. Yeah. I mean, unless he'd come back to the area, and obviously it's a small area. He could have found her. Yeah. So then things things get messy. I mean, they're already messy, but oh, even yeah. more I'm, messy. I'm not blaming her for it. I'm just saying it's an interesting yeah. like aspect. Because it is true that people do have really weirdly ambivalent relationships yeah. with people yeah. that abuse them. No, but I mean, like things get more messy. Oh, so, God, from here. Yeah. So, no, I've... Yeah, things just blow up. So Bishop says that Marion, this girl, this 16-year-old, may have taken the girls back to her flat. So now he's trying to blame her for the murder of Nicola and Karen. Marion says that one of Nicola's dad's friends had sex with Nicola. Actually, years later, Nicola's dad, Barry Fellows, and his friend are charged with Nicola's rape. It's unrelated to this murder. What? But there's abuse going on to this child. The girls... So don't feel too bad for Barry Fellows. Fuck. So this poor fucking girl. So she was raped by her dad and his friend. And then in a separate incident was, was like murdered. taken and murdered. Yeah. <gasps> so the girls... had Well, both girls had apparently been part of a sex ring that uh, were being abused by older people including this barry fellows and his friend um and the book just drops it in there i was like what is happening this is horrific and then so what the what the police do which is bullshit they so they arrest pullen for cannabis possession this is like days after this murder because they want to search through his house Obviously, they don't give a shit that he's got cannabis, but he's got tapes of sexual encounters with a lot of young people, including this Marion, um, when she's 16 and he's a lot, a lot older. And they searched through his tapes, but they didn't confiscate any tapes. They didn't prosecute him against any of these people. So he basically gets away with it. How weird. Like, so pe- like what, like paedophilia wasn't as high on their list? Well, then they start to investigate this paedophilia and suddenly the Mormon church is involved and the Freemasons, who incidentally we can't talk much about probably because they threatened the writer of this book about it. 
And he oh said, uh, <laughs> I don't want to talk about it too much, although I've mentioned them in here. So then the police came under scrutiny because Marion, apparently, the 16-year-old, has been approached by police who said, could you please have sex with Russell Bishop and try and get him to confess while wearing a wire? Oh, my God. This 16-year-old child. Um, she was his girlfriend. I mean, I'm not making it better. They were She's already shagging. Yeah. But if anyone, if a grown man is dating a 16-year-old, it's like they're a bit a pedo, but they're trying to do it legally. And yeah. you're not telling me that you didn't shag them when you fi- they were 15. Well, I always, I always say to my kids, if we're doing sort of sex education or citizenship or something like that, if an adult wants to sleep with you, it's not for good reasons. He is not in love with you. Like no adult would want to sleep with someone that young for any kind of good reason you're not special (laughs) you say that to them you're not special yeah it's not that you've got some weird magnetism it's that he wants to abuse you it is important for them to know as a teenager you feel like a grown-up yeah for sure you're not yeah no but i think that's important to let them know because like you feel like you're grown up and like i remember being a teenager and not thinking there was anything odd about you know fancying a teacher or feeling like oh imagine if he liked me back you don't consider the fact that they're a pedophile if they do (laughs) yes so it is important i've I've really fancied robbie williams but if he'd written back to my letter saying how much i liked him there would have been something fucked up about it yeah um so he finds the microphone on marion so she goes through with it um and has sex with him how do you have sex wearing a wire well, I wondered. The that. police must have some really shitty sex lives that are like, go on, you can do it wearing a wire. Um, I don't know how you do it. But, but he finds the microphone and then she says, oh, that's the only one. He finds, of course he finds the fucking microphone. Uh, They're having sex. There'd only be one place they could put it on me. But even if he had confessed, <laughs> fucking hell, where? I'm not going to answer that. That'd be bad. <laughs> That's the only place they couldn't put it. <laughs> or it's muffled this. Sounds like you have sex the same way the police officer does. But even if it had worked, they couldn't enter it as evidence because it's like they'd get permission I don't understand the why she needed to have sex with a wire on. Why couldn't it just know. be go and have a conversation with a wire on? <laughs> so, so then focus then shifted to this blue pinto sweatshirt. It had... The only one that isn't fucking children in this whole yeah. story. So it had bloodstains on it and small holes. And witnesses said that Bishop had been wearing the jumper. So they basically take this jumper round to Bishop's girlfriend's house. Just as like, they've got a load of things. And immediately she says, oh, you've brought his jumper back then? And they're like, oh, right, okay. Oh, has Russell got a jumper like this then? And she's like, yeah, 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 that's his. Or he's got one like it or something like that. So she's asked about it. And she says... Well, you'll know if it's his because his jumper has got a red stain on the sleeve from when he was doing some work on his car. And they look at it and there's a red stain on the sleeve. They also confiscate a pair of trousers that have the same red stains on them. So they take it away. It's like that episode of Friends where Monica thinks that someone's stolen her jeans. Yes. And it's like, you really need to get new clothes because she's like, yes, I know it's mine because there's a bleach stain on the crotch or... (laughs) I know it's mine because the bra strap is ripped and it's like, buy some new fucking clothes. Yeah. Uh, They speak to Bishop and he says, no, not my jumper. I've got a black one like that. But that's what she's thinking of. It's definitely not mine. And they say, but why did she say there'd be red on the sleeve and there is red on the sleeve? And he's like, oh, well, it's not mine. It's not mine. And they say, well, why are these trousers yours? They were in his house. He says, yeah, they're my trousers. And they're like, well, why has it got exactly the same chemical compound as what's on this jumper then? He's like, uh, 
no comment. And then <laughs> the author says, that was possibly the most sensible response he had made that day. So then Bishop's girlfriend withdraws her statement. And really, the only thing they've got as evidence on Russell Bishop is this Pinto jumper. And she says, no, they made me say that. Even though she's signed something to say that it was his jumper, she says it's been fabricated and they falsely signed it with her signature. So Bishop's arrested. He stays in prison till trial. He won't eat any of the food because he's scared that all the prisoners are going to be putting stuff in his food. And they actually did find shards of glass in his mashed potatoes. Um, And he's constantly getting death threats because everyone labelled him as a child killer. It goes to trial. At trial basically it all revolves around this blue sweatshirt and uh in the book it's quite cute because they've got like little images i'll show you one where they've got the a diagram of the evidence and how it crosses over just to sort of prove that it's uh this guy um a venn diagram sort of like here we go so it's a little image i'll put it on instagram and it says the fiber evidence and it shows which fibers were on the jumper and then which fibers correspond to other items someone's really enjoyed drawing that (laughs) it's quite good like they've written the word pinto in a cute little banner like just i don't know it's they've really taken pride in their work yeah they, so there's the fibres from the dead girl's clothes that are on this jumper. And obviously there's evidence that his jumper belonged to Russell Bishop. But there's not, there's just not enough evidence. And they, like they, the defence say things like, well, they were probably just stored together. They, everything was lumped in together. People didn't really follow protocols. So he's acquitted of the murders. So despite this, while Bishop and his girlfriend Jenny celebrate in a hotel with champagne, because he's basically got away with it now, um, Bishop's house is firebombed and they write child killer on the outside of it. God. Which I don't I don't agree with, but I can see why people would be annoyed. It's hard because you don't agree with it unless he's done it. And technically now he's been acquitted. So I guess you're gonna tell me that he did it in a minute, but it could someone could have been. It's like that case that you did before where Vincent Tabak was the murderer, but everyone had suspected um, the other person who lived in the building and it like ruined his life because then even afterwards, then even afterwards when Vincent Tabak was, had been prosecuted, people were still like, he was still like tainted by this whole scandal and people were like, oh, well, there's still something odd about him. I don't know what my point is. Just make informed decisions, I think is my point. But I'm nearly done now, thankfully. So, four years after the murder, Bishop... This is why I think he did it. This is technically an unsolved murder. So, we don't know for sure. But Bishop is convicted of the attempted murder, kidnap, and indecent assault of some other young girl in Brighton. Like, I'm sorry, but this guy... Got away with is it. Is linked Clink. to a murder. And then, there's another one. and then does something very similar. There's no chance. Yeah, if you <laughs> just if you were innocent and had just got away with child killing, it doesn't make you think, do you know what? Actually, I could have a go at that. Like, <laughs> yeah. It only makes you think you've already done it. I can do it again. Yeah, it's not like that show where you get to try a job for the day and then you're like, oh, this might be my new life. I'll stick with it. <laughs> yeah. It's been a wild ride. (laughs) Yeah. So I tried to find evidence that they were going to bring something back, like maybe use DNA, because this is an unsolved murder. 2002, there was an article saying that uh, potentially he could get recharged with a murder because double jeopardy doesn't exist anymore and it's fine, even though he's been acquitted to charge him with the same murder. But I couldn't see any 
new further development. So I was thinking, if you are looking for a, a subject for a long form podcast, teacher's pet style, I think this would be a good one. Well, this episode was long enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was interesting. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Oh my god, I hate it on podcasts when you can hear them having a cup of tea and slurping it in my ear holes. I'm going to stop drinking tea. Which is very hard for me, being British. Yes. I literally drink about six cups a day, though. Do you think if we had tea in an IV, we'd enjoy it still? It's the taste, it's the drinking, yeah. isn't it? It's the holding the warm mug to you and pressing it against your cheek to drain the last warmth from the mug. Do you do that when you finish your tea? I think, yeah. But I think if I was in a coma, I would have tea. Like, I'd, my body would crave it. I think the first thing that I'd want when I woke up would be... A tea. A tea, yeah. Yeah. Like, when I was on a school trip the other day, I was like, look after the children, I'm going to the cafe! And I <laughs> brought tea for all the adults. Like, we needed it at that point. When my mum was in the hospital because she had a twisted bowel and nearly died. Did you know about that? I've never heard of that. Shit. Some, there's some, uh, I didn't laugh at that she died. It's yeah. just, uh, I've never heard it twisted like bowel. It was like some rock star had a twisted bowel and did die. Shit. Um, like, literally, it was like clogging up her inside. But oh. like, well, because she had to be like in an induced coma and stuff after, when she was in uh, intensive care. After that, she used to drink like 10 cups of coffee a day. That's the only way she could stop drinking coffee. It's like she had to obviously go, she couldn't drink it then. Then she was like, I'm not drinking coffee anymore. Oh, so she withdrew from coffee in an induced coma? <laughs> yeah. God. Yeah, with a twisted bowel. You can't shit go to the doctor. 
yeah you never know what it could be right so part two of this babes in the wood special is a shorter and (laughs) my god probably not as interesting version but it was the original so (laughs) should we tell that to the grieving families oh yeah it's not like an award you want to (laughs) win yeah definitely not see i feel like i've heard of babes in the wood it's a phrase i I think there's a little isn't like a play in a film and stuff like that i think there's like a kid's story the babes in the wood Um, which is nice so i never really knew what it's about but um this is one of the most well-known crimes from the 1970s but it wasn't until 30 years after it happened that there was actually a successful conviction for this one it's gonna get solved so the two victims were 12 year old gary hanlon and 11 year old susan blatchford and they went missing on the 31st of march in 1970 Um, Gary was described as being small for his age, but he was exuberant. He loved playing sports and being outside, um, usually playing sports outside where he lived in Enfield. You may remember from the Enfield poltergeist. Yeah, a lot of weird shit was happening around there in the 70s. So before his disappearance, Gary had become friends with Susan just recently in the last couple of months. Um, They'd met at school because she'd recently joined and they lived just a few streets away from each other. So Susan was described as being a bit of a tomboy, and she seemed to match Gary with a bright personality. The day that the children disappeared, Susan had come to call for Gary after school at around 4.30pm, and Gary's mother um, said that she'd allowed them to play by the side of the house because she said she she was going to be able to hear they were there because there'd just be constant noise of the football against the wall. She'd be able to keep an ear out for them. And she also remembers that she was cooking his favourite dinner of lamb chops and was confident that he'll come in when he knows this is ready. So for whatever reason, probably I think just because they were sort of that age where they're still really young, not really making sensible decisions, but they're old enough that they can be a bit more independent the two decided that they'd just go and play elsewhere and they'll come home later um, there were several sightings from other children at their school and local residents who saw the children walking across the streets in the area and heading towards what they assumed to be Sewardston Green in Chingford so these are all like north London areas that evening neither child returned home and the parents went to report the missing to the police at around 7 p.m that night so quite soon on yeah um that's not suspicious they rang the police um and for this was i did watch a documentary um by fred darnage i love fred darnage <laughs> and there's interviews with gary's mom beryl just recently and she recalls that she the, rang the police and they said, look, go around and check all his friends' houses first. Like, he's probably just stayed out with them. But she was like, no, Gary is incredibly afraid of the dark. There is not a single chance that he wouldn't be home before it was dark out. She was like, he's never done it before. He's too frightened. He always gets home before it's dark. So the police were like, okay, we'll come out now. And she was like, I'm so glad I said it because that's the reason that they really began searching for them. Yeah. Um. So the search began that night. It was particularly cold. Even though it was March, the next day, the 1st of April, it was actually going to snow. And so many people were worried that if the children were left out, they would freeze to death. 
So the day after the kids went missing, Scotland Yard became involved and they were able to cover vast open spaces. They had around 500 officers, um, sniffer dogs. They made in total around um, 15,000 interviews and they checked 4,000 homes. 15,000 interviews? Yeah. I mean, it's just the wide expanse of area that they were going through. And I guess... um, in sort of like the built-up housing areas, like there's just a lot of people. It's high-density population, North London. Yeah. So some people even claim that this was the first time that a helicopter had been used to search for missing children. Wow. So a massive deal. And it's still a massive deal now. Like even now, if we see one over the playground, I'm like, they're coming for you. When I lived uh, somewhere else, um, I remember there was like a wooded area near where I lived. And once there was a helicopter that uh, they were they were making a broadcast saying, stay out of the wooded area. I was like, fuck. Oh but apparently someone had said they were going to kill themselves and gone into the wooded area. So they needed it to be clear so they could thermal sense where that one person was to get help to them really quick. Gosh, I think they survived. That's good technology. Yeah. Um. So the police did suspect a convicted child sex offender called Ronald Jebson. So they went to interview him twice. Um, Jebson had been released from Wandsworth Prison on the 2nd of March 1970, so just over three weeks before Gary and Susan went missing. He'd been there because he'd been sentenced to two years in prison in 1968 for sexually assaulting a six-year-old girl, which doesn't seem a lot. Not good. Only six, but he only got two years for the sexual assault. In the 60s. So according to um, Professor David Wilson, who works at the university that I went to, oh. um, but he um, he used to be a prison governor back in the late 70s, 80, early 80s. And he said that even in the 80s, when he worked with some convicted paedophiles, he said there was little in the way of rehabilitation or aftercare so that when they released them he felt like it was just a time bomb waiting for people to reoffend and catch them again what's the aftercare now then low i imagine uh, i mean i guess they keep an eye on them i'll be on it well we know that there's strict um restrictions on where they can live yeah like how far away from Another schools register, there's everything. the register we have the dbs checks and even in um the in America in particular I probably know more about because I've watched um the Louis Theroux documentaries of a place for paedophiles they have like communities and um almost like hospitals for some people where they can choose to live to stay away from problem with a problem with any crime is that if you want to do it it's pretty easy to do it's just whether you're going to get caught or not well it's even easier with the internet and stuff now isn't it because you can do it without putting yourself out there if you um, wanted to murder someone, I could go murder someone now. I could just walk out with a knife. Yeah. Just whether you're going to get caught or not, isn't it? It's terrifying. Well, right. the only way to stop it is to, like, minority reporters and be like, they're thinking of murdering someone, commit but Yeah, then you take everything. And then you take away your free will. Yeah. Anyway, so after his release, Ronald Jebson had moved to Enfield. And four days after the disappearance of Susan and Gary, so the 4th of April, he was arrested again for sexually assaulting an 11-year-old boy. He travelled up to Nottingham and sexually assaulted this boy in a woodland outside of the city. And he would eventually be convicted for this and sentenced to another five years in prison. So even if he hadn't 
been involved in the even if he wasn't involved in Gary and Susan, he's still reoffended within the month of yeah, being released. He's a dangerous person. So Again, 1970, this was still pre-electronic database for the police. And so they're basically still working on a system of written records, memo cards, and it made it really difficult to cross-reference information. Um, So Jebson had provided police with an alibi. He claimed to be with a friend called Robert Papa all night. So with little to go on and being almost drowned under the wealth of information that they were collecting from these interviews, Jebson was passed over as the main suspect. So he's out of the picture for now. Then on the morning of the 17th of June in 1970, um, a dog walker was in Epping Forest and they discovered a shallow burial site with the bodies of the two children, Gary Hanlon and Susan Blatchford. Super sad. Although they were fully clothed, the burial hadn't been deep enough to protect the bodies from animals. And so it was quite difficult to determine their cause of death. They had been, I don't know what the word is, attacked, interfered with. Yeah. Animals had eaten bits. But it was noticed that Susan's underwear was missing. Her trousers had been removed and then placed back on top of her. So... um. This seems pretty obvious evidence of a sexual assault, unless there's a badger with a particular fetish. But, (laughs) sorry. It's obviously sexual assault. It's not a fetish badger. But the lack of any other physical evidence, because they just couldn't tell how they died, it was recorded as an accidental death, and people just believed they must have died of exposure to the cold. No, and what, then been buried... That's what people had believed at the time. They were saying that it must have been exposure and it says it was recorded as an accidental death. That's ridiculous. Whether they tried... I don't even know how... It does say very shallowly buried, so I don't even know if they were buried or whether they just were covered with a light light topsoil. And they might have thought the kids had done it to try and stay warm. No. Well, it was bullshit because Susan's mother said... I know for a fact that she would have been wearing when she went out, she would have been wearing a bra, she would have been wearing a pants and she would have been wearing stockings, all of which were missing from the body when they collected the clothes. And so her mother was urging them to continue the investigation because she was like, this is a definite sexual predator and they're going to strike again. So the break in the case would depend on what happened next with the convicted paedophile Ronald Jebson. As well as the convictions for sexual assault that had come either side of the murders that I mentioned, the two-year one previously and the five-year conviction afterwards, Jebson had a clear escalation of offences that had happened in his life. He had been done for indecent exposure when he was still just a teenager. Fuck. um, And obviously worked his way up. So from an early age, it was apparent that he had serious issues and he was quite dangerous. He'd been a, he'd had a tough childhood. He was adopted by the Jebson family just because he was born out of wedlock. Really? Yeah. But he was born in 1938. So just society at the time just made it too difficult for his parents to keep him or his mother to keep him in that situation. Girls go into hiding, wouldn't they? And then just exactly. So he was adopted by the Jebsons, but he'd originally been given the name of. Harper so throughout his life he would 
he'd managed to escape some con- his previous convictions following him because he would switch between his birth name and his adopted name. And sometimes he'd just use an entirely different pseudonym. So he'd been known to be an odd child. He was lonely, um, looked after children, do have lots of issues. That's not uncommon. But he did maintain a friendship with one school friend, Robert Papa, who he had the alibi for at the time of Susan and Gary's disappearance. And he would often stay with Robert Papa when he was discharged from the army in 1958. He went and stayed with him. And then every time he was released from his various prison stays, he'd initially always go to Robert and stay with him first. And it seems that he was able to keep what was happening hidden from the Papa family. They didn't know that he was being convicted of sexual assault. Well, if he stays with them for a bit and then moves out, there's no internet to tell them Mm. about it happening. So if something happens a long way away and he's using a different name, they it's not going to catch up with him. He can just tell them, oh, I went traveling or I had a job up north, anything. Having been sent to prison for that five years for the assault of the 11-year-old boy in the Nottingham area, he's just served three years of that five-year sentence. And when he came out, he returned to Enfield to live with Robert Papa. Um, at this point, Papa had a wife and children. Oh, I bet he wasn't fucking pleased when he turned up. Really? How long are you staying for? Yeah. Um, and the wife's there like, fuck in hell. Exactly that. So it's not sure why, but I thought exactly the same of you. He's probably outstayed his welcome. He's got a wife and kids. They don't keep wanting this guy. He's been showing up the whole life like he's over it. Um, so Jebson and Papa had a falling out. Luke had a friend like this who was sort of all over the place, fell out with his parents, um, couldn't keep down a job and like moved in with him for a good month. And in the end, he said, you're going to have to go. Yeah. And he like... One time he paid him to do some work on his mum's house. And then, honestly, he phoned him, like, every week for, like, a year after that, saying, do you want me to do some more work? Well, it's like me with my fucking lodger, who was like, oh, I'll just stay for three weeks. And then it was four months. And I wanted to actually murder him. But then people like that do need help. But then also, yeah, I've done enough now. My little brother says that. He always says that me and my mum are the same. Like, we'll do really nice things to help people, but we'll bitch like hell about it. (laughs) (laughs) Just to ourselves, but... So they had this falling out and Jebson had threatened that he was going to do something to hurt him. So on the 9th of June, 1974, um, almost immediately after this falling out, Jebson went to um, the primary school where Robert Papa's daughter, Rosemary, went. It's thought that it was... um, a school for children with special needs. I'm not quite sure exactly what her need was, but she was definitely vulnerable. She was only eight years old as well. So when Uncle Ronald showed up to get her from school, um, yeah, she was like, sure, he lives. he's lived with me. It's yeah, Uncle Ronald. It's not, like, yeah, it's not some like weird stranger. Nothing odd. Um, he drove Rosemary to a field and oh he forced her to perform a sex act, a sex act on him. Rosemary, of course, at this point was extremely distressed and was crying. And Jebson said later that it was a bit of a turn off. Oh, sorry. Um, And that made him angry. And because he was angry and she was crying, he couldn't perform any longer. And so he says that's the reason why he strangled her to death. And then he just covered her body with straw. It's yeah. This film I was talking about earlier, three oh nine six days. 
um, is quite good at showing sort of that unstable mind, but also the dynamic of you should be you should be happy that I've got you, like I'm being nice to you. Like you've kidnapped this person, but then the, ex- the like the expectation is should be grateful, and then like the real anger when like the kid crying or upset or wants her mum. Oh, I mean, it's, it's that weird mind logic. of a paedophile, isn't it? Like they're yeah. attracted to children, but then there are paedophiles who who don't believe that se- that children can't comprehend sex. They'll say that they wanted it. They'll say that yeah. they they enjoy it, and they don't. That's part of what makes some people a paedophile is the fact that he can't understand why she'd be upset by this because he's like, "You're gonna love this," like, oh, so and they foul. get really so it's absolutely awful. Obviously, Jebson just covered her with straw. He didn't make any great pains to hide the body, partly because he wanted it to be found. He, Like he said, he'd wanted Papa to be hurt. And perhaps because he knew that when he found out what happened, he would immediately know it was a Jebson and he would be arrested. He decided to go all in and go and try it on with Rosemary's best friend, <gasps> Kayla Oddwell. Oh, my God. So Jepson knew Michaela Oddwell's parents because he'd been around Robert Papa. The girls were best friends. They'd see each other outside of school. They'd be going between houses. So they knew him. So when he went to their house, he was welcomed in um, to their family home. And he just showed up saying that my car's broken down and he needed somewhere to stay. He had blood on his jumper, but he just said, oh, it's his own. And so Mrs. Oddwell was like, oh, sure, I'll take it. I'll sort it out, Give, put it into soak. That's the problem. Like, people are nice. Yeah. Um, and this is still only 1974, so I don't think like this. He's an extremely predatory pedo, but this is still, like, in that time when, like mentioned before, um, people were a lot more trusting. The kids were playing out a lot. The doors weren't locked. Is that- yeah, because a pedophile in the media was... A guy you don't know in an anorak and glasses who is really weird and you'd know instantly. Yeah. And that's not what happened. So the next day after he'd stayed over, Michaela stayed home from school with a headache. Oh. Which is incredibly unfortunate for her. And just from a teaching perspective, give them a paracetamol and send them anyway. I hate it when I get they're off school because of a headache. We I all mean, I'm get not headaches. Bring this up as evidence. We all like, get headaches. Yeah. Like, are you going to just go to your job and have a day off because you've got a headache? Kids moan about going to school and they're always fine when they get there. They can't be asked to get up in the morning. Stop keeping them home for headaches. Paracetamol, bye. Calpol, bye. Give me the Calpol, I'll dose them up at lunch. Let's get on with our lives. That's separate. I'm not saying it's anyone's fault here. I'm just saying, side note, no thanks to headaches. But when I moved schools um, to move here, I was like really unhappy because we'd moved so far away. I had a weird accent. No one wanted to talk to me. Um, And... I would say I'd be crying at school and I'd say I had a headache. And that's when I discovered that this new school, they would send you home for a headache. At my old school, you'd throw up and they'd be, okay, it's out now. Sit in a corner. It's nearly home time in an hour, which is what I do. If Well, it's only an hour and a half till home time. We're not going to ring your mum to make her come out earlier. Just sit down and relax. But this school would send you home for a headache. So I was like, bingo. I had a headache every day until my mum was like, please stop sending her home. Yeah. Like, I don't know why that school thought headache send you home. 
Yeah, literally every school I went to, all you had to do was go up to my mum and stuff and go, I don't feel very well. And because I'm quite pale, they'd always go, oh, you do look pale. And literally send yeah. me home every if time. If I cried and said I was a bit ill, they said, I couldn't believe my look. This, my parents hate the way I was so angry all the time. <laughs> anyway, so Michaela next day stayed home from school with a headache. Um what worries me is that maybe something had happened which had made her distressed, possibly the fact that her friend was missing. So it might not have been a headache. But she was home not feeling well. Um, Jebson had spent the night on the sofa and he laid around and waited until Mrs. Oddwell was talking to the neighbours outside and he went upstairs to see eight-year-old Michaela. Um, when he went into her room... Um, He attacked her, he was hitting her and holding her down. And so Michaela screamed and screamed for help. Her mother came in from the back. It seems like she didn't, her mum didn't necessarily hear it or just thought it was like noises in the street. Um, But Jebson, hearing that she'd come inside, he gave her 10p and said to her that I've killed Rosemary. Fuck. And... I'm going to do the same to you if you say anything about what's happened here. Whoa. And then he left the house. That's a lot for a kid. Yeah, she's eight years old. She attends the same special needs school. So she's so she's not able to deal with really what's happening. And she's interviewed as a vulnerable adult and is still dealing with what's happened. And the Whoa. fact that guilt over not saying anything. She didn't say anything at the time. She should not feel guilty for that. That's um, terrifying. But I suppose, kind of thankfully, the next day Jebson was arrested. He immediately confessed what he'd done to Rosemary. And so he was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum of 20 years. He went and served time in a prison in Wakefield. And in 1996, he confessed to an officer working in the prison that he knew who'd been responsible for the deaths of Gary Hanlon and Susan Blatchford 26 years earlier. And so the case was reopened. So he initially told the story of how, along with the Papa family, um, the, I guess, husband and wife, he'd been driving around Enfield. God, he really hates his Papa family. Yeah. I guess like he just felt betrayed, like it's that angry betrayal, yeah. but not particularly. Um, so anyway. Get over it. So he'd been driving around Enfield with them, he said, and they saw the two children on the street and together they lured them into the car. He then said, well, I suppose he's thinking, I'm in prison now, possibly for the rest of my life. Cause I could even- do with some friends. <laughs> or just like, I can confess to anything. It's not going to make, because he's minimum 20 years. Then realistically, they're not going to give him parole. Now it's the 90s. They're not. It's not going to happen. So he's just thinking, I can take down Robert Papa from here by confessing. If I confess my part, then... But what did Papa do to him? Does not want him to stay at his house any longer? So he said that he was driving with the Papas. They saw the two children and lured them into the car. He then said that they took the children back to the house where for several days they were subjected to sexual abuse by the Papas. He then said that he had no idea what actually happened to the children after that they dealt with it. And it's thought that he, um, as well as trying to get Robert Papa convicted, it's also thought that by this confession, it was going to like raise his status in the pedo hierarchy in prison. What? 
I thought pedos were like the bottom. Yeah. So like they are. Pedos are like the absolute bottom, but then there's even a hierarchy amongst the pedos. I mean, in lots of places they put the pedos together separate because otherwise they get murdered and stuff, don't they? Yeah. And so then there's a hierarchy among them of who's actually gone through with what they say oh, they're going to and stuff. Oh. That's one hierarchy I would not want to be top of. So... Obviously, this was an incredibly stupid move because the Pappas had been his alibi at the time of the murders. So now they were asked about it. They had alibis of their own for that day in 1970, and it wasn't involving Jebson. So he was interrogated again by police on the 24th of August, 1998. But then... On the 24th of August, 1998, he called Edmonton Police Station himself and said that he needed to change his previous statement, confessing to the murders of both Gary Hanlon and Susan Blatchford. His new version of events was that he'd been driving around Enfield and spotted the two children, where he enticed them into the car and drove them to a remote spot. He then says that he offered the 11 and 12-year-old alcohol, he offered them weed, and that it was Susan that he was interested in and he assaulted her. He said that while this was happening, Gary obviously became freaking out and trying to protect Susan and trying to attack Jebson, get her off him. So Gary was killed first. Um, He then described in detail how he knelt on Susan's chest and so that he could strangle her. And then once he told this story, they were able to um, match that with some of the injuries that were found on the body, particularly like the crushing of the ribs where he knelt on top. Oh, I just, you can't even imagine it, can you? Like that those children, one, having to watch her friend get killed. And then at that point, you know what's going to happen to you. Like that's it. So he then talked about, because obviously people in his situation try and give an excuse for what they've done um as he had with rosemary said that it was her fault because she made him angry she had ruined it so now he talked about that there was two sides of him there was little ron and there was big ron and big ron was the evil side of him who takes over when bad things start to happen and he said so initially it'd been little ron hanging out with the kids and then as he got angry little ron's still weird big ron took over and he was the one that made this murder happen so jebson was charged with the murders and he was given two life sentences to be added to the one he was already serving um and he did die in prison at the age of 76 um the families at in the end of the documentary, particularly Gary's one, they had like mixed feelings about finally knowing the truth. Because on the one hand, they were like, we we know what's happened now. It's the end of that chapter. But then they were like, actually, it doesn't change what's happened. We'd already lost him. But now we also have the horrible details of what happened to him. And I thought that was quite interesting that actually she was like, I think I could have been happier if I didn't know because it's not helped me bring him back. He was already in prison, so it's not really helped other people the way that they wanted. So it's quite a sad conclusion to the story. And particularly Gary's mum, even talking about it now, she's in her 70s and she's still just incredibly upset, very raw, very emotional when she talks about it. And... I don't think you'd ever get over that, would you? Just sad times. Really sad. Um, Thank you for listening. And uh, if you can think of some crimes that don't make us all want to cry, 
the leg join our facebook group and post them below and uh you can tweet us on twitter at slaughter the pod okay but can i just say something really quickly when you're saying post something there if you're posting something in the group you don't need to link us to the wikipedia because then i'm thinking oh now everyone in the group's gonna read that wikipedia article <laughs> yeah. and they're not gonna be interested in what we're gonna say and I'm also not going to use the Wikipedia articles. So I'm not going to look at it. Even I'll be like, oh, I'm going to learn about this murder. They're learning about the murders themselves. <laughs> so post a summary of the murder and tell us about no, it. No, don't post anything. Give me a name. I can Google. Don't, don't, we don't just want them to come on the Facebook groups and write a name. I want to know whether mm. I need a hook. Otherwise, I won't Google it. A name and a hook. What's... I don't need to be interested. I just need some work done for me. <laughs> If you want to email me a script to slaughterthepodcast at gmail.com, just put the name Emma in the subject title <laughs> and your work can be featured on this podcast with little or no credit. Uh, and uh, if you'd like to contribute to our Patreon, because uh, we all know as a business idea to create something that takes a lot of time and then give it, it away for free. It takes a lot of time. A lot of time. Then give it away for free. It's not the best money-making venture. So much time. <laughs> so uh, you can let, join our Patreon. We've been putting a lot of extra content on the Patreon for $5 Even as well. just listening to Lucy's story took up a lot of my time. <laughs> it's my week to edit, so I'm fucked. It's like the... It's nearly the evening now. We started in the morning, practically. <laughs> what yeah, is happening? Sure. <laughs> um, so you can go to patreon.com forward slash slaughter the podcast, I think. But if not, try slaughter the pod. And uh, there's extra stuff, isn't there? What have we done recently? You asked me some weird questions. Um, there's uh, a we've series got some of bloopers. Okay, we'll tell you then. <laughs> <Go> on, uh. <laughs> All right, this is why we need to stop because Emma's getting grumpy. <laughs> He's like, "There's some stuff on there, isn't there? This and this." <laughs> oh my god, I feel like I'm. Should we just do another one? Should we just talk murder all day? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, this is. Oh god. I've lost my mind. Yeah. We had to be serious for so long today. When it's dead children, we have to really concentrate. I don't know. Maybe concentrate's not the right word, yeah. but... That, they were both quite complex as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think we did a good job. <laughs> it wasn't very funny. We're just going to pat ourselves on the back for the last five minutes of the episode because no one else is going to do it. I don't even know why we're still talking. We don't need to put any filler into this. No, Look, it's already like an it's hour and a half long. It's so long. Right, listening to Slaughter doesn't make you a psycho. <laughs> I think everything in this podcast would, though. Yeah. We, there's no one specific thing I can pick out. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.